right. Good morning. It's great to see everyone. Um, thanks for being here today. Thanks for joining us online. Uh, today we are um, continuing our answer, answering the questions you submitted, and we had a lot of people submit this question, which is interesting because it's not a fun topic. What does the Bible say about hell? So I'm wearing black, uh, and that's intentional uh, because this is a very dark topic, obviously, and uh, very sobering, very serious, very heartbreaking, very, uh, very alarming. Um, you know, if you've been in church life for some time, like back when I was a kid, it was common to hear preachers, what they call hell, fire, and brimstone preaching. Anybody remember that stuff, right? And kind of the, 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 the descriptor of that style of preaching was, um, we preach about hell, so it will scare you so much that you turn to Jesus just to make sure you don't go to hell, right? And there is some legitimacy to that, um, although it kind of became and grew into the kind of a church movement that produced people just came and said a prayer, walked out just to kind of get hell insurance, right? And not really see it as a pursuing or living, thriving relationship with Jesus, What's happened since then is the pendulum, and we're, we're pretty bad about this as humanity, the pendulum swings to the opposite side, where now you don't hear many sermons about hell at all. And in fact, there's this movement in, in evangelical theology to try to explain hell away and try to, try to lessen the reality of hell by saying things like, well, there's a view called annihilationism, which says, well, you know, when you die, you're thrown to hell, you burn up, and you're just done. It's over. But that's just not what the Bible teaches about hell. And so... Today we're going to look. We're going to look at. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures. I'm going to move kind of fast. There's a lot, there's a lot in here about hell. We're going to look at the progression of the the revelation of hell and and how we understand hell today and where does that come from. We're going to look at Old Testament passages about this place called Sheol, Sheol, Sheol. So I'll pronounce differently. I'll just say Sheol. I'm from the south, and so. Um, We'll look at this term and how that evolves and look at Hades and look at hell, Gehenna. And so we'll look at all these things, but just the reality is hell is a terrifying reality. And we, we should not not preach about it. We should not not teach about it because the gospel is beautiful. You know, Jesus rescues us, but ultimately, what does he rescue us from? Hell. Right. And hell is real. As, as, as much as other views to try to explain it away, say it's metaphorical, it's figurative, or it's a lesson than what Jesus teaches or what Paul teaches, it's not. It's, it's everything that they teach about. And it should play a part in us loving Jesus and coming to Jesus. It should really scare us to know that if you're here today or watching online and you're not in a relationship with Jesus, that as of this moment, this is your eternal destination. It should scare us. It should move us to ponder the reality, the beauty, the glory of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. To know that what we're going to talk about today is what every single one of us deserves. As harsh as that may sound, it, we do because we have committed treason against God because we're sinners. We rebel against God. We, we choose self. We choose selfishness. We choose greed. We choose lust. We choose envy. You know, we choose lifestyles not congruent with the word of God. We choose these things, and therefore we deserve what we're about to talk about. But God in his grace and his mercy, who loves you so much, he sent his only son to die in your place, to incur 
the wrath that you and I deserve for us so that this is not our destination. But being with him forever is our destination. So it's a serious topic today, um, and it does elicit some mournful thoughts and some um, sobering perspectives in looking at my life and what, what path am I on? Am I, am I in the path with Jesus or am I on my own path? Because those two paths have very different destinations. So um, let's just start with a word of prayer and we'll just dive right in uh, and look what the Bible has to say. Father, we are um, just in awe of you, thankful for your love for us, thankful for the rescue that you provide in Jesus because God, as we talk about this really heavy, hard topic this morning, it, it is sobering, it's scary, it's, um, it's almost beyond our, well it is, it's beyond our imagination uh, to be able to fathom uh, the depths of the reality of hell. And so I pray, God, that uh, you would help us all here to, um, to take this seriously, to heed uh, this message of what you, from your word about the reality of hell. Um, and God, that that would catapult us into uh, a more thriving, loving relationship with you, but also, God, a, a greater sense of urgency to tell others about you. Because, God, should you not intervene in their lives and should others not respond to your gospel in faith, this is their eternal destination. So, God, we just pray in your kindness you would lead us to repentance and lead us to loving you more and living for you. For your glory's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm um, going to dive right in. Really no big thought today. The big thought is hell is real, I guess. That's, you know, that's, that's the thought. You know, we talk about grace a lot. We love grace. We're seeing amazing grace. Grace is a great term, amen. And grace, amazing, to be cliche, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. What is grace? Grace is that unmerited favor. It's, grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. But grace is not infinite, and it's not automatic. It's infinite for those who are in Christ, but it's not infinite for everyone, right? Uh, those of, who are living their life apart from Christ, who do not have that faith in Jesus, their grace is very limited. They have prevening grace, which is the grace of the day, grace to live another day of life that God gives us that we don't deserve. But the, the grace is not infinite because they're not in a relationship with Jesus. Only in Jesus is there infinite grace. And so the alternative of that infinite grace is infinite torment and infinite punishment, which is hell. So we're going to dive in and sort of number one in your notes, and I, I don't have control down here, so I, I couldn't connect for some reason. So if you could take over there. Question number one is how does the Old Testament, how does it refer to this concept of the afterlife, the abode of the dead? And so we're going to go through some terms here. And first letter A is this, is this term I mentioned, shoal, spelled S-H-E-O-L. And um, we're not exactly sure the origin of this term. Um, the Hebrew word in its root just kind of means to ask or inquire. And that's kind of interesting. Um, but a lot of times it's, it's just translating the Old Testament, just referring to the grave, kind of the, you go into the grave. And so we, we'll see some examples of that in a, in a minute, in just a few minutes. And so 25 different passages in the Old Testament translate this Hebrew word shoal into the grave. So you'll see that. But then more over 30 times, we see that the word shoal is, is used to refer, refer to like the netherworld, right? The, the afterlife, the, the place where people who have died go to be. And um, we see this in, in scripture. You see like in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 10, um, 
The writer here says, I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Shoal for the rest of my years. And so we see Shoal. Shoal is revealed as a place of sorrow. Um, Psalm chapter 116, verse 3 says, The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Shoal have laid hold on me. I suffer distress and anguish. Shoal, the place where the wicked go. The wicked go to Shoal. We say in Psalm chapter 9, verse 17. It says, the wicked shall return to Shoal, all the nations that forget God. So Shoal, Old Testament, kind of the abode of the dead, especially for the wicked. But we also see that some of the righteous talk about going there too. The righteous also seem to go to Shoal. Now, next week, we're looking at what does the Bible say about heaven? So we'll unpack the positive side next week. As gloomy as today is, next week's going to be bright and fun and joyful and hopeful. Amen. Can't wait to get to that part. That's the fun part, right? Yeah, so that's, but that's next week. But just quickly, you see in, in this kind of growing etymology of shoals, Genesis chapter 35, we, we see this concept introduced when it talks about Isaac. Now, Isaac was the son of Abraham really early on. In, in, in the whole story of God and his people, Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people. That's an interesting phrase, gathered to his people. We see that same phrase later in Genesis 49, talking about when Jacob or Israel dies. It says, Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew up his feet into his bed, kind of interesting, and, and then breathed his last and was what? Gathered to his people. And so this, this gathering, right, of these patriarchs to their people um, kind of evolved in Jewish tradition to becoming the term of Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom in older translations. And so it was this gathering of those who were righteous to Abraham's side. And, but we still see that, you know, sometimes this is kind of a part of Shoal, part of the afterlife, part of the netherworld. And Jesus actually speaks of this concept of Abraham's side in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So we're going to read that. Um, so that's kind of, it's not really, a, it's, it's one of the main texts, but we're going to be all over the place. But Luke 16, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke 16, where Jesus is going to tell us a parable about two people, a rich man and a guy named Lazarus. And he talks about this parable. He introduces us to this kind of snippet into the netherworld, if you will, and kind of what happens to Lazarus, who is kind of seen as righteous, and what happens to the rich man who wasn't, who was wicked. And we see kind of a snapshot into Old Testament concept of Shoal. Jesus is going to use a New Testament word, Hades, and we'll get to that in a minute, to refer to this. But um, Luke 16, I was going to just stand and on the reading of God's word. I'm just going to read this, and we'll unpack some of it now, some of it later. <clears throat> So Jesus tells this story. He says, there was a rich man, I'm in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. There it is, Abraham's side. Older translation there will say Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and he was buried. And in Hades, if your translation says hell, Hades is the actual word in Greek. Hades is the word. So, and in Hades, being in torment, 
he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. And remember, Jesus is the one telling us this, right? It goes on, verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses, they have the prophets. In other words, paraphrase, they have the word of God. So let them hear that and repent. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if just someone just goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Thanks. Go ahead and be seated. Paints a picture here, right? We see this afterlife, Shoal, Old Testament, New Testament words, Hades, wicked and righteous, wicked or suffering, torment, the righteous are at Abraham's side. Kind of interesting. The pain there was real. The desperation. Did you hear the desperation in the rich man's tone and his plead? Look, it's over for me. I missed it. Just please go tell my brothers. I got five of them. Warn them. And what Abraham says is still true today. Look, we have the word of God. The word warns us. Today, what we're doing, this is the warning, right? This is the warning that you and I are get receiving. This is the message, this is the warning we can give to others. That this, this expanse, this gulf, this separation, the torrent, it's, it's real. And it awaits those who don't walk with Jesus. So the righteous, though, are rescued from Shoal. We see that. Psalm chapter 49, verse 15 says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Shell, for he, for Shoal, he will receive me. That's good news, amen. The rescue. We also see from the Old Testament that those who are in Shoal are fully conscious, fully aware. Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 21 says, the mighty chiefs shall speak of them with their helpers out of the midst of Shoal. They have come down. They lie still, the uncircumcised slain by the sword. So there's, there's conversation, there's talking, there's thinking, there's awareness in Shoal. That's one term we see. Translated either just shoal or the grave. We also see another word in the Old Testament. That's the word the pit. The pit. This word is often used of the, uh, of the abode of the dead, especially as a part of shoal, right? Uh, like Psalm chapter 30, verse 3. It says, O Lord, you have brought me up, you have brought up my soul from shoal, restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. It's a different word. This is the word bore. It's spelled in English, I guess, is B-O-R-E, but that's not obviously how you spell it in Hebrew. 
but it refers to that pit, like a dungeon, like the bottom of a well or or the bottom of of a cistern is what that word is used. And so you kind of look at all this kind of as as just a recap of things. And in the Old Testament time, they're they're thinking is that they saw saw the universe in kind of three levels, right? They saw the heavens, right? The heavens, that was the realm of God. That's where God was. That's where God dwelt. That's where the angels were, heaven. Then they saw the earth, and that was the realm of the living. And then they saw Sheol. That was the realm of the dead. That was their three kind of layers, if you will, right? And so through death, people passed from the land of the living to the land of Sheol, the realm of the dead. And this transition could be described sometimes as falling asleep or um, you know, passing away or entering the, the, the land of the living. Well, the dead continued to exist as living souls in Sheol, not in their physical bodies, but in their, their soul would continue to, to exist, to be conscious, to be, to be aware. And so, fully conscious, and, and so that was, that was Sheol. So Old Testament, it seems that Sheol, there's three areas. There's the place for the righteous, there's a place for the wicked, and then there's the pit. And we're going to see that that's going to go into the New Testament as well. So we transition. Daniel, uh, the, the prophet Daniel, lived in the late 600s, early 500s BC. He comes along, and, and he's got this, this, uh, this statement that kind of furthers the revelation of what life is like after the grave, right? And he says, as many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So here's where resurrection language really begins. And so this is gonna transition us into the New Testament because prior to this passage, right, there's not a lot of clear evidence of a belief in hell as we know it today where there's everlasting torment. It was shoals, a place of the dead. There was some sorrow. There was some consciousness but here Daniel awakens the, the, the reader and the follower of God, the student of God's word to this concept of everlasting torment, everlasting contempt, and also to everlasting life and goodness, right? And so that's going to bring us to the New Testament. So let's look at the New Testament development. How does the New Testament refer to Sheol, this abode of the dead? And first, let's look at what Jesus teaches us, right? So Jesus has a lot to say. We read Luke 16, uh, his parable. Uh, but also, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, right, very early in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, Jesus talks about, he brings a new word into play, and that's the Greek word, Gehenna. We'll look at this. So Matthew five twenty two, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. How many of you are angry this week? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, which the literal word here is, is empty head. So it's like if you call someone a, a, a moron or something like that, then you're liable to hell, the hell of fire or hell fire, right? So here Jesus introduces this word, Gehenna. And so this Greek word, Gehenna, which is the word translated hell, um, it, ha- it was a literal place right outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's on the eastern side in the facing kind of the desert, the wilderness. And it, in this valley, the Valley of Gehenna, there was a constant fire burning. It was their trash dump. It's where they took all the trash and the fire was constantly burning. So they would throw stuff in, throw their trash in the fire. And it would, you know, they would also take criminals who were 
um, tried and found guilty of, of extreme crimes who they thought did not deserve a proper burial, they would throw their bodies into Gehenna, into the fire. So the fire was reserved for the really bad, right? And so Jesus chooses this word, Gehenna, to bring into our theology to explain the eternal concept of hell. So Gehenna, this is is the first time we see the word used uh, from Jesus is in Matthew's gospel, chapter five. He goes on, chapter five, verse 29 and 30 says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now, let me just warn you that this is not literal. Otherwise, none of us would have any eyeballs, right? This is a a method of teaching called hyperbole, right? Which means excessive exaggeration. So Jesus is saying, look, sin is so serious, it really would be better not to have an eyeball than to continue in that sin, right? He's not commanding us to go gouge our eyeballs out. Again, we'd all be blind. Blind leading the blind. For it is better, but here's what he said. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into Gehenna, hell. And if your right hand calls you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into Gehenna, hell. Other references, we're not going to read all these, but Matthew 18, Jesus uses the term eternal fire. So here he refers to Gehenna as a perpetual fire then will be an eternal fire forever in this real place of Gehenna, of hell. So, these statements that Jesus reveals here views that hell is real, that it is awful, and it's eternal. His teaching says here, it's better to go blind and maim than to go to hell. Every time Jesus uses the word Gehenna, every time he's talking about the eternal hell, he uses the word Gehenna. He presents hell as a motivation to incite people to take painful measures now in order to avoid a fate far, far worse, even worse than mere physical death. When he's talking to his disciples, he sends out the 12, he realized that they would be harassed and hated, persecuted, and the temptation for them would be to cower and to back away. And, and here to remind them, here Jesus also leverages hell as an incentive to fear and serve God. Look what he says here in Matthew's Gospels, uh, chapter 10. He says, do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. So here, not only is it a, is it a motivation to fear and avoid, it's also a motivation for us, an impetus for us to serve the Lord, to get the message out. Because the alternative is far worse. Here we see hell is loss, it's pain, it's destruction. And so the point Jesus makes here, temporary discomfort here is much, much, much preferable to the permanent calamity in the age to come. Jesus talked to his opponents, calls his opponents, calls them... uh, to his message to, to the Jewish religious leaders, he calls them hypocrites. He says in Matthew 23, verse 15, he says, woe to you, scribes and 
Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land and make a, a single proselyte, a convert would be another word for proselyte. And when he becomes a convert or proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves. Hmm. And we get to the parable we read, the rich man and Lazarus, where you see a, um, a poor man who lived faithfully to the Lord get rewarded by being Abraham's side. You see a rich man who had everything, who never had faith in God or faith in anything but his money, go to a different place. And here Jesus uses the term Hades. And again, we'll talk about that in a minute. For this, um, Hades refers to the abode of the dead, particularly for those who are not in a covenant relationship with God through Christ. And as we'll see, Hades is a temporary state. Gehenna refers to the trash dump, as we talked about, and Jesus uses that term as a more permanent, eternal place. Some other descriptions Jesus uses of hell. Matthew chapter 8, he's the term outer darkness. Matthew 8, 10 through 13, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. Also see this, there will be weeping, or some versions say wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, verse 13, another parable, Jesus says, the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. Matthew 25, 30, cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. So outer darkness is always accompanied by this next phrase, the weeping or wailing and gnashing of teeth. Wailing, yelling out loud, screaming in absolute agony. Has that ever happened to you when you've been in so much pain that you just yelled out? Anybody? Hopefully you didn't yell out expletives, right? And sometimes there's just so much pain, you just can't, you, you, you gotta just let it out, right? You just gotta just yell. That's the wailing. And then gnashing of teeth, what is that? I swear you're so much pain, just like in the old days when soldiers were shot and wounded in battle and they had to remove the, the bullet or the, the musket ball or had to amputate. They had no, anesthe you know, no anesthetics. They had no anesthesiology. That's a study of it. There's no anesthetics, right? And so... The soldiers have to, they give them something to bite down on, a, a, a stick or a branch or a bone or a rock or something. Because they're going to be in so much pain, they just bite down on that thing. That's the gnashing of teeth. And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who knows all these things, look at these words and how he describes hell. He chooses to use outer darkness Outer darkness, what does, that, what does that mean? That means there's, there's no light. It's away from any light. Totally pitch black, dark. If you ever go caving, you're getting down to the belly of a cave. Can't see anything. There's, it is total darkness. It's scary, isn't it? It's, have you ever been in a situation like in a cave or somewhere there's, there is no visibility whatsoever? You can't see the hand in front of you and it's very terrifying, especially if you lose your flashlight, your batteries go dead or 
been there, done that. Start yelling, hey, somebody get me out of here. You want to be rescued, right? Outer darkness. Couple that with the pain that involves gnashing of teeth, wailing. Also, separation. Matthew 25 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the holy angels with him, he will set up he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. It's talking about the great judgment. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right, on his right, but the goats on the left. And he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you curse into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me, away from me. And we know God is omnipresent. So you're not totally separated from God in hell. You're separated from his goodness. You're separated from his mercy. You're separated from his love, his benevolent kindness. All you will know of God is the fullness of his wrath against sin that we deserve. Away from me. And notice the words Jesus, Jesus here used, everlasting fire. Not temporary. So bullet down the New Testament, we see three words. Three, three different words used to refer to our concept of hell in the New Testament. And the first is, is the word Gehenna, which we've already looked at. Um, it's used quite a few times here in the, in the New Testament. Matthew 5, 29, Matthew 5, 30, Matthew 10, 28, Matthew 18, 9. A lot of times in Matthew, mostly by Jesus. Although James does use it in uh, James chapter 3, verse 6 where he talks about the, the, the tongue and he says the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. Our tongue can be set on fire by Gehenna. It's how damaging our tongue can be. Amen. Y'all live that, experience that. So that's Gehenna. Already explains the trash dump. The second is the word Hades. And this is interesting. Have you ever studied Greek mythology? Anybody? Greek mythology? It's, it's, it's interesting how... Um, Satan tries to counterfeit everything God does, you know? And so here, Satan along in Greek mythology, you know, which is a very demonic uh, religion, believed in many gods and goddesses, many deities, but in Greek mythology, Hades was the brother of Zeus, and Hades is the, the, the father, the lord of the, of the dead, of the underworld, right? And so Hades, although it was a person, also became the place where in Greek mythology, dead people would reside, right? Well, that was all a counterfeit. That was all a, uh, you know, Satan's not, I, love, I think Toby said this this week, we were chatting, said Satan's not smart enough to create something new, a new idea. He just takes what God does and tries to twist it and counterfeit it, right? And so, you know, Hades in Greek mythology, um, was a place of the dead. Well, Hades, according to Jesus, uses this word to bring in the true theology of what Hades really is. It is a place of the dead, of those who are not in a covenant relationship with Jesus. So we'll look at paradise next week as part of the heaven conversation. Um, so Abraham's side, paradise, you know, you have Sheol for the wicked, and you have Hades, a lot of connections. There are a lot of similarities. It's interesting. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is with his disciples up, way up north in Caesarea Philippi. And um, he tells them this, and he has this conversation he's, where you know, Jesus says, hey, who are people saying that I am? 
And disciples say, well, some say you're Elijah, come back to life. Some say you're uh, John the Baptist, come back to life, and a prophet, whatever. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? That use plural, so we, I'd say, who do y'all say that I am, right? Who do y'all say that I am, right? And Peter answers, says, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says this, I'll say to you, you are Peter. That's where Peter got, that's, that's Jesus giving him this new title, right? Peter means a little pebble. And upon this rock, big boulder, meaning the gospel that Peter just said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And here it is, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, some translations put the word hell here, but it's not the word Gehenna. It is the Greek word Hades. And here's what's interesting, right? So Jesus, when he's having this conversation with Caesarea Philippi, there's this cave at the base, and we talked about this before in here. There's this cave in the city of Caesarea Philippi. And in Greek mythology, that was the entrance, that cave was the entrance to Hades, or it was known as the gates of Hades. And so when Jesus is telling them this, they're right there on the ridge line, probably looking down the city at the literal physical spot that's known as the gates of Hades. And Jesus' point is death will not overpower the church because the church is built on the gospel and the gospel Jesus overpowered death, amen? Pretty cool. But here Jesus uses Hades language. It seems very similar to Shoal. The only difference is there seems to be no reference in any part of the New Testament of anyone righteous being in Hades. They're in paradise. So that's one twist and we'll get to that next week. So there's one other um, here use of the word or, or term for hell, and that's the word Tartaros. That's the Greek word, Tartaros. It's only used one time in the New Testament. It's right here in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, God did not spare angels when they sinned. Here's talking about back to Genesis, most likely Genesis chapter um, 6, where we had the, the Nephilim. It's a whole great conversation. Not getting into all that now. But angels that sinned and, and cast them into hell and committed them to be chains of gloomy darkness be kept until the judgment. Here, this word translated hell, here is this Greek word Tartaros. Again, we see in Greek mythology, Tartaros was the pit. So Old Testament had the pit. Tartaros was the pit. In Greek mythology, if you ever read that, there was a time when uh, the Titans rebelled and against uh, Zeus and the gods in the Pantheon and, and temporarily won, but then were defeated and they were thrown, cast into Tartaros, the pit. And so the pit here that Satan tried to twist in the Greek mythology really is the place, though, of intense punishment for the, for the probably most severe crime, like the angels who had departed from what they were called and created to do. It's that deepest abyss in Hades. And so this, this subterranean region was dark and doleful, and it was the place of the most wicked people in, in Greek times. And so Jesus takes that and redeems that concept back to its fullness, and here it's Tartaros. So that's Jesus. Let's just go to Revelation. Revelation has a lot to say about hell, too. I'm doing it on time. I got, I got two minutes. <laughs> All right. Uh, fast and furious here. Uh, teaching from Revelation. First, Jesus has the keys to Hades. Revelation 1, 17, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am also alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Means he has power over them. Secondly, Hades followed death. We see that in Revelation 6. I looked and behold a pale horse, his rider's name was death and Hades followed him. So death comes and you go to the place of the dead. So that makes sense. Then you have 
uh, letter C, Hades will deliver up all of its dead for judgment. So there's coming a time, according to Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, where death and Hades gave up their dead who were in them so that they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So there's going to be a, a time in the future where this temporary abode of the dead, where this has the souls of the dead who are not followers of Jesus, that Hades will give them up. They will all be delivered right before Jesus Christ on his throne to be judged. And judged according to what? To what they have done. And of course, all of us are sinners. So judgment will be for real. And then we see this, letter D. Hades itself will be cast into the lake of fire along with death. That's how we know it's temporary, right? So Revelation 20 says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into this lake of fire. And this lake of fire, uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Number two, eternal suffering. Revelation 14 um, paints the picture of it being eternal. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. See, God's there, right? God's still there. Holy angels in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest. To me, this is the worst part about hell is there's no rest. There's, there's no hope. Gosh, that's, that's brutal, guys. No hope. Eternal suffering. And number three, the lake of fire, which is the reality of what Jesus had called Gehenna. Again, we see in Revelation 20, the devil who deceived him was thrown to the lake of fire and sulfur when the beast and false prophet were. Revelation 20, verse 14, death and Hades again thrown into the lake of fire. So in conclusion, as we wrap this up, the big picture, we see the progress of, of God revealing to us the reality, the horrors of hell. We see Old Testament Shoal, and kind of a part of Shoal is the pit. New Testament, see Hades is abode of the dead for those who are not in a covenant relationship with God through Christ where they um, still do not possess a physical body or just a soul. And then part of that Hades is Tartaros, again, the pit. Then we have the word Gehenna, the actual trash dump outside of Jerusalem that Jesus uses that as a picture of the eternal physical hell. And the lake of fire, which is the manifestation of Gehenna. So, so what? You have a correct theology of hell. How does that change our lives? Some applications, three things, and we close. Number one, the harshness of hell is one of many motivations for us to trust in Christ. So if you have not trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, according to God's inerrant word, this is what awaits those who have not trusted in Jesus. Number two, the reality of hell should be a key motivator for us to tell others the gospel. Tell others about Jesus. Hey, you might get in a little trouble if you tell someone the gospel. Is a little temporary discomfort for us worth someone having eternal comfort in heaven? Yeah. It's what love does, folks, right? Jesus said, love your neighbor. The most loving 
thing you and I can ever do for someone is tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the most loving thing to do. And number three, the harshness of hell is one of many motivations to serve Jesus and others. Let's think about serving. You know, Nathan talked about serving. Look, look at the folks serving right now. I mean, folks up in the video booth, got people in the back rooms doing the online video so it can be broadcast. You know, Gary's on sound. All that facilitates the gospel going out, doesn't it? All that facilitates people hearing about Jesus Christ. Right now we have some amazing people in the nursery. You know, they're, they're cleaning bottoms and changing diapers, right? But that's so some of you can be in here and hear the word of God week in and week out. Teachers, teach your connection groups and lead them to teach the word of God so we may understand his goodness, his mercy, his ways. We have hospitality, we have greeters, we have, you know, Ms. Roberta and the team does coffee and donuts every week. All of that is so our guests feel welcome and are willing not only to come today, but to come back next week to hear more about the gospel, more about Jesus Christ as you serve. That part of your impetus to serve be because hell is real. And as I, I'm serving in the, in, the, in the overall body of Jesus Christ in the church, that creates opportunity for people to hear the gospel. It creates opportunity for people to, to understand how good Jesus is and what, what truly we're being rescued from, right? It's a beautiful picture of love. We serve because we love. Don't serve out of duty. Don't serve just out of a sense of obligation. Serve because you love. Serve because Jesus loves you, because Jesus served you. Jesus serves us. Serve because there's others who have served so that you could be where you are today. Serve because from here on out, every single Sunday, here on location, here online, we have people viewing and hearing who don't know Jesus yet. This is their destiny. So serve so they can have opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus. Love them. Serve them. Be welcoming. All of that flows into this gospel ministry Jesus has called us. And we love the gospel because we love Jesus. Jesus loves us. He saves us. He rescues us. He forgives us of all of our sin, right? He has purpose for us, intentionality as he created us. And now he saves us so we can live that intentionality out for his glory. And that in part is to tell others the good news of Jesus so they don't have to go and face this eternal torment. You can't get more opposite in heaven and hell. There's no greater opposites. Heaven, hell, Jesus' love, and our hatred. Those are the two most extreme opposites there are. And the gospel makes all the difference in both of them. So as we close, just two questions. Has there been a moment in time in your life when you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because he is the Lord. He's, he's the creator of the universe. He's the Lord of all. You being saved is you surrendering and, and acknowledging his lordship. Has that ever happened in your life? If not, we're going to have a moment here where you can do that. Second question. Who is there in your life, for those of you who are believers, followers of Jesus, who is there in your life that this 
wrecks you because you know that's their path right now. And what have you done to love them, to share the good news, to model the good news? What have you done? So we're going to open up this time. I'm going to ask you to stand. Um, I'm asking our prayer counselors to come on down and, and um, just be here to serve you, to pray with you, to pray for you. If you've never trusted in Christ, oh, they would love to pray with you about that and, and walk you through that amazing moment that changes your eternal destiny. <laughs> Talk about a powerful moment. The moment you give your life to Jesus changes everything. I'd also love to pray with you if you have loved ones you want to pray for. If you have loved ones, you want to pray for God to use you and others is to intervene, intercede. Because it's the gospel that changes lives. It's the gospel that saves. So you may have other issues you want to pray about. They would love to pray with you and for you. Uh, this is a great time. If you want to join this church family, this is that time as well. But it's time for you to respond to what the Lord has laid on your heart. I know it's been a very heavy topic today. Um, but may the Lord use this to stir us to the right action and the right response. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Even though we are all but unlovable. Thank you for saving us because we are hopeless without your salvation. Thank you for your forgiveness, which cleanses us from all sin. Thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us, and you will never leave us and never forsake us. Thank you that you guarantee us eternal life with you. In verses like the popular John three sixteen, Lord, where you tell us that you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten son that whoever believes, trusts in you, Jesus, will never perish but have eternal life. Lord, we praise you for that amazing promise. God, I just pray that we would respond in faith right now, that we would respond with authenticity. That God, now is not the time to try to put on airs or act like everything's okay. Or God, just be honest before you. That Lord, if there's anyone here watching online who's not trusted in you, Jesus as Lord and Savior, that God, this would be that moment. Because Lord, none of us know what this afternoon holds. But Lord, you do. And you're giving us this warning, this moment now. God, help there to be none of the rich man in the parable here today that just is going to willfully, blindly ignore this warning. But then from Hades, have all this regret and all this desire to send the word and warning to brothers. God, help us to realize this is our warning now. And to heed this warning in faith. So God, just be with us as we make decisions, commitments for your glory. Lead us, guide us according to your plan for us and your love for us. In Christ's name, amen.